Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. From the High Center Studios of Messiah College, home of our own little version of the Fall Classic, here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. Now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew. It's 5 o'clock on a Friday in the middle of September. We are getting ready for the weekend. All of you may be out there getting ready for the weekend, but we are here working and bringing episode 40 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast to you. Drew, every season we do an episode on sports. Sometimes we do two episodes on sports. In past seasons, we've had sports historian Amy Bass talking about soccer and her work on the Olympics. Bruce Berglund was here discussing his work on global ice hockey. Adrian Burgos Jr. on Latin American Major League Baseball players. Today, we are going to focus on the intersection of American religious history and sports history with our guest, Paul Putz. That's right. Paul's doing some very innovative work at the intersection of these two fields. Uh, you know, and I see his work popping up all over the place in my Twitter feed and on, on blogs I read. And he's going to give us the background on, on an interesting term that he's, he's using a lot of nowadays. I initially thought he had coined the term sportianity, as he's going to tell us in the interview. It was actually the Sports Illustrated writer Frank DeFord uh, who used that term. But he's running with it, and we'll let him explain what that means when he joins us in a few minutes. And we should probably add that Paul is in studio because he is a colleague with us here at Messiah College. Absolutely. Paul joined the history department at Messiah College. He'll be with us for the year. We're thrilled to have him on board in the department. Uh, he's teaching American history courses for us, and he's even going to do an upper division undergraduate seminar next semester in the spring of 2019 on sports and race in America. Yeah, we, I was actually talking to him before the interview about that a little bit. He's he's getting a little, I, I shouldn't say nervous, but you know, I mean, this is a tough conversation. Yeah. And uh, that's a course that's going to attract a lot of a lot of students who think they know the answers even before they get there and even before they read the text. So he's he's bracing himself, I should say, for some tense conversations. Yeah, it sounds like a great course. I wish I could take it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I would have been... I I would have I would have skipped one of your courses to take that one. <laughs> hey, that's fair. 
Paul's emerging really as one of the public, uh, as the public voice, uh, whenever sports and religion intersect with the larger culture. You know, for me, as someone who spent the better part of my life as, as uh, within the evangelical community and as someone who's a big sports fan, I have loved so far, he's only been here a month, but I love strolling down to his office and picking his brain about this or that sports story that's out there. Yeah, and with uh, pastors cutting up Nike socks from the That's pulpit, right. we know we we're going to have a lot to talk about, especially in regards to Colin Kaepernick and the the whole taking the knee and the Nike ads that are kind of re-energizing that debate here the second season in. Definitely. Well, Paul will be with us in a few minutes, but first, Drew, a word from our sponsors. That's right. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities, Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beattie and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beattie has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org. That's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. And if you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And as always, the best way to spread the word about the podcast is to take it to social media. So follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And consider giving us a positive review on iTunes and Stitcher. Reviews are so important. Well, before we get to our interview with Paul... You have a few words for us, John. On this episode of the podcast, we are thinking historically about the relationship between sport and Christianity in America. In an attempt to provide some context for our discussion with Paul Putz, I thought we would take a historical dive into the 17th century and reflect a bit on some of America's earliest thinking about the relationship between sports and Christianity. For a long time, historians thought about the Puritans as dour prudes who had no fun. Much of this stereotype came from Victorian and 20th century fundamentalist appeals to a religious and modest Puritan past. Sports, after all, might lead to mirth, which could lead to sex. And sex might lead, of all things, to dancing. Perry Miller and the scholars who followed his lead debunked many of these stereotypes. These historians painted a picture of Puritans who enjoyed leisure time and found pleasure in it. They drank alcohol, they had sex, and they relaxed after the workday was done. One of these post-Miller historians is Bruce Daniels. His book, Puritans at Play, Leisure and Recreation in Colonial New England, is one of those books on the Puritans that deserves more attention. While Daniel's research suggests that Puritans enjoyed leisure and recreational activity, competitive sports was one area where traditional Calvinist concerns about activities that had the potential of leading one into sin were consistently applied. 
The 17th century Puritans rejected the blood sports of the Middle Ages. You will not find jousting tournaments or bear baiting in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But the Puritans also frowned upon most early modern sports that were gaining popularity in England. Sports were a waste of time. Handball and tennis in England were associated with the idle nobility. Sports did not refresh the body. Instead, it made people tired. Many sports were designed to inflict pain or injury. Some sports led to gambling or encouraged people to defile the Sabbath. The only sports that Puritans believed to be morally acceptable were fishing, hunting, and martial contests. These sports, they argued, were productive in nature. They did not harm the larger community. In fact, two of New England's best-known wrestlers, Daniels notes, were clergymen. Few ball sports made their way to the region, largely because they would tempt Puritans to break the Sabbath or gamble. But there is evidence that New Englanders regularly participated in nine-pin bowling tournaments. In the 18th century, as boxing, cricket, and horse racing became popular in England and then extended into the American South, Puritans continued to reject these forms of leisure. These forms of leisure were reserved as worldly activities that drew morally suspect participants and observers. Sports in early New England were for men. Women, the Puritans believed, were too weak and delicate to be engaged in such physical activity. It would not be until the 1830s that physical recreational activity of any sort was deemed suitable for New England women. Today, Boston is a great sports city. But contemporary Red Sox, Patriots, Celtics, and Bruins fans would not recognize their ancestors' approach to athletic activity. Indeed, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Thanks, John. Our guest today is Paul Putz, lecturer in American history at Messiah College here in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. After four years of teaching social studies in Omaha, Nebraska, Putz pursued a Ph.D. in American history at Baylor University, completing his degree in 2018. He is a historian of modern United States history, specializing in sports, religion, and American culture. His work has appeared in Great Plains Quarterly, the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, the Annals of Iowa, Nebraska History, the Journal of Sports History, Christianity Today, Religion and Politics, and Slate. He blogs at Sportianity.com and is currently working on a book manuscript titled The Spirit of the Game, American Protestants, Big Time Sports, and the Contest for National Identity. Our guest today is Paul Putz, lecturer in American history at Messiah College and an expert on sports, Christianity, and American history. Paul, welcome to the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Thanks, John. I'm excited to be here. And uh, I thought about asking for this in my contract when I was hired by Messiah. So, But even the possibility that I could, I could be here was kind of a perk. Yeah, well, this is part of it, right? This is part of uh, the package when you come to Messiah College. You get to participate here in our sort of worldwide media empire presided over by the man sitting across from me, Drew Hermelin. Um, so tell me, you are a historian. Um, let me make sure I get this right. You are a historian of sports and American Christianity or American religious history. Is that fair? 
Yeah, I think I think that's fair. So tell us, wh- what got you into this subject, first of all? And tell us about this. Is this a legitimate field? Like, are people working in this area? You know, many of our listeners may not know that this is a, a legitimate field of inquiry. So tell us a little bit about why sports and history. Sure. So how I got into it, I think for me, it was personal. It's it's growing up being fascinated by sports and playing sports. And uh, I, I loved history from a young age, but I didn't necessarily want to become a historian. But once I did get on, into the historian path, I think it was natural to start to ask questions. Um, how did my experience with sports, what was the history behind that? And, and for me, I grew up uh, small town, Nebraska. I, I was part of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, this, this evangelical uh, Christian group. That was really important in my life early on. And so I got interested in, in those sorts of questions. How have, how have Christianity and sports blended together? How did we get organizations like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes? And when I started looking into those questions and, and figuring out, can I find answers? Has anyone written about this? What does this say about American history and cultural values? I, I found out that that's a story I, that I thought was worth telling and found a dissertation supervisor who'd let me write about it. And here we are. Make a case for us or for me or for our listeners why uh, we should pay more attention to the intersection of sports in America, just American history generally. It's a good question. I actually, I was asked this in my dissertation defense. Uh, I, and, and some other people have asked me this too. I think there's, within history, there, there is this perception that sports is not a serious topic. It's, I often say that it's the book that you write after you have tenure. That's when you do the sports yeah. book. Yeah. So maybe you're, you know, you grew up as a big fan of the New York Mets as you are, John. And um, now that you have tenure, you could do that book. You could go and, right. and write the, the book about the Mets that allows you to relive nostalgia and that sort of thing. Um, for me, I don't see sports in that way. I think that there, there's a place for that type of history. But I think, I think historians need to take sports seriously as a source for intellectual and cultural value transmission. I think sport and its institutions, they're actually, they're a place of power, of contestation of power. And it's a place where you get to shape the future of the American nation in really dramatic and profound ways. Um, you think about the number of youth sports leagues we have, the way that sports are connected to our high schools and colleges. In all of these places, uh, student athletes will probably spend as much or more time with their coaches on the fields, in their locker rooms, as they do in the classroom. So for me, I think sports should be taken seriously in that sense, um, that, that we need to spend more time thinking of it as an intellectual endeavor, as, as a site of, of cultural power. And, um, and I think when we do that, then we can maybe begin to understand how sports uh, might be important. I mean, college professors of all people should clearly understand that sports is important. Like we all the time, I'll, I'll hear college professors complain about, oh, the athletes, they're, they have to miss class because <laughs> of their sports, or they're doing too much practice, now they can't do their homework and that, that's or, or the administration, they're funding this new stadium and they won't right. they won't hire, you know, a new a new historian that we need. So I think even even when we look at the way universities function 
and the money and the time and the value that sports are given that tells us something about the importance of sports. And I think it tells us we should spend more time studying it as historians. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree. You can count me as someone on board, Paul. I think, you know, why is it that like, if you were to decide to write a book about, I was just talking recently to a guy who's writing a book about this guy named John Anderson, who ran for as a third party candidate for president in what was it 1976 or 1980? I can't remember. And everyone's oh, what a great project. But like, if you write a book about like Willie Mays, it's (laughs) viewed as you know, who, who clearly has had much more of an influence on American culture and who people know it's viewed as, well, he's a sports figure. What good does he know? And we tend to know more about sports than we do politics or even some other spheres of contemporary life. So, uh, you know, maybe if there was a true sports historian here, they would say, well, we are doing this work, right? It's going on. And, and you know, someone like yourself, if you were to speak as a sort of representative of that community, say, yeah, we are doing this work. We are. But I think it definitely, I agree with you, it definitely needs to be more mainstream. Now, let's let's talk a little bit more about your more specific kind of interest in sports, namely sports and Christianity, because frankly, I don't know of a whole lot of historians. I don't know of any, actually, other than yourself, who is really taking a deep dive into this subject. Tell me about that interest, religious history, Christianity and sports, because you're beginning to see more of this kind of intersection of sports and Christianity in the public conversations today. Sure. Well, you know, there, there, are, there are scholars who have looked at this as, you know, any subfield that you can find, it's probably the ground has been tilled before. Yeah. Um, for, for sports and religion, for historians at least, one of the big names is William Baker. Okay. So, so he's, he's published probably the, the best single-volume book that looks at just the broad scope of religion and sports in the United States. And, and he does it from a historian's perspective. Okay. Um, outside of historians, though, most of the work you see on religion and sports, it's done by uh, religious studies scholars. Um, it's done by theologians yeah. quite a bit. And a lot of their questions, they're focused on, you know, is sport a religion? Right, right. Um, how are they similar? How are they different? Or they'll look yeah. at, you know, what uh, what's the theology behind sports? And is it is it appropriate? Is it correct or true uh, right, Christian right. theology? Uh, certainly, I guess you know from the when, when we talk about Christianity and sports, that's the uh, that that tends to be the sort of people who who write about yeah. it. Not many historians. Like, is is Alabama football a religion right. kind of stuff? You see those all the time. Absolutely, you know? yeah. yeah. That's that's or common. Nebraska football, right? Yeah, actually, there's there's a book, there's a dissertation um, that is about Nebraska fandom as lived religion. Yeah, and it's a religious studies dissertation. Um, you know, it came across it yeah. uh, online. So yeah, those sorts of questions are out there. Historians looking at Christianity and sports, not so much. I should add, there are a lot of historians who have looked at um, American, the American Jewish community in sports. Yeah, that's that actually has has a lot of great work in the field. But for some reason, the historical look at Christianity in sports, um, not not as many historians have looked at that. Yeah. Yeah. You have coined a term. I believe you've coined it. Uh, It's also the title of your blog, um, Sportianity. Am I pronouncing that right? You're pronouncing it right. Sportianity. Tell us what sportianity is and where you came up with this term. Sure. Well, I have to. I did not coin it. Okay. um, Oh, that's right. It's Frank DeFord, isn't it? Frank DeFord. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a, a Sports Illustrated writer 
he, he coins the term in the 1970s, 1976. He writes this series on religion and sports. And, you know, Frank DeFord, he's an Easterner. He's, a, he's a, an Episcopalian, so he's a churchgoer, but mm-hmm. he is not. <laughs> Drew will, will like the Episcopalian reference, I'm sure. But he is not a... He's not an evangelical. He's not yeah. in that world. But he's observing sports, and he sees there's all of these athletes talking about Jesus. They're having team Bible studies. They're praying, and they're going around, and they're they're trying to spread the, the gospel message and get people saved. And these are professional athletes. They're college football coaches. And so he, he wanted to explore, how did what is this world? How did this yeah. exist? And, and so he did a three-part study where he coins the, the term sportianity to refer to this evangelical sports subculture. It's led by the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Athletes in Action, Pro-Athletes Outreach, these organizations who have really embedded themselves in big-time sports. And in DeFord's view, uh, this world of sportianity, it's sort of a perversion of Christianity. Mm. He, he uses it in a negative sense as... Uh, he, he sees them as mostly boosters for sport who sacrifice moral conviction in order to have a seat at the table of sports. Right, right. So it's very much a, a negative term for him. I, I use it as more of a descriptive term mm-hmm. to refer to this, this subculture that I grew up in and was familiar with and I still have connections to in some ways. And so I use it more descriptively. Um, but I'm certainly all credit due to Frank DeFord for, for yeah. coming up with that term. I'm going to go way off script here all right. and put you on the spot. What is the relationship between sportianity and DeFord and that guy with the afro or the perm with the rainbow-colored hair who used to sit behind the goalpost with the John 316 sign? <laughs> Remember that guy? Have you heard of this guy? Yes. Is he still around or are there new have the guys taken his place? Yeah, that you know, we should I, I hope an ESPN 30 for 30. Yeah, that would do, be great. Do one on that guy. Uh that's a great, you know, f- I'll put that in my research file. Someone needs to, to write something about that guy because when I thought about, you know, as a young evangelical coming of age as a teenager, kind of converting to evangelicalism as like a 16-year-old kid, I remember like watching football and seeing that guy with the you know who I'm talking about, Drew? Have you seen him? I used to I used to say Wow, John three sixteen, yeah. Like now, I understand what this guy means when he's back there. I mean, it's a little interesting coming a generation later. I'm I'm going to confess a little bit of my Episcopalian roots. Bible memorization not as yeah. huge of a deal in my denomination, and so what's funny is I knew about making fun of, of the John three sixteen. Right? Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of the guy uh, of <laughs> of Stone Cold Steve Austin, the yeah. professional wrestler, and he used to wear a shirt that said Austin three sixteen. Yeah, yeah. You know, making fun of this. So I knew that cultural touch point before I actually knew why that was such an important Bible verse. You yeah. know, I mean, it that just guy, wasn't something that guy, yeah. I engaged with. I mean, if you're of a certain age, you're yeah. definitely connecting right now and you're a sportsman with that rainbow-colored Afro mm-hmm. guy, white guy. He looked mm-hmm. like he looked like um, Bob Ross, that right. painter on PBS, you know, who, anyway. But Frank DeFord, yeah, one of my favorite sports writers of all time, recently passed away, right, Paul? That's right. Yeah, yeah I believe yeah. last year he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you're working on a book right now, right? Tell us a little bit about this book project. You know, what's your thesis? What are you exploring? You know, how are you digging into this idea of sportianity in your own work? Well, the title is The Spirit of the Game, American Protestants, Big Time Sports, and the Contest for National Identity. Uh, it's, it's based on my dissertation. I did change the title for my dissertation. Uh, it just 
as, as I think a lot of people maybe find this with their dissertation, as yeah. soon as it's done, you're already thinking of what you want to change with it. Right, and so right. that's, that's the case for me. So it, it's, it's a revision of my dissertation, but the basic, um, the basic premise that the, I, what I'm trying to, to do is to explain how American Protestants went from this, this moment in the 1920s, where most of them see big time commercialized sports as a threat to, to their place in American culture. All of a sudden, sports are being played on Sundays, and they're taking away from the Sabbath. Um, Americans are flocking to to see college football games and boxing matches and baseball games in the 1920s, and church attendance is declining in that same decade. So there's this combination of religious, uh, Protestant religious adherence declining while sports fandom is booming in the 1920s. And, And a lot of Protestants connect the dots, and they actually see sports as a threat. So, so I start with that moment in the 1920s, and then I figure out how did we get to a place by the 1970s where Frank DeFord is writing about how closely connected evangelical Protestants are to sports. All of a sudden, they don't see it as a threat. They actually see it as, as, as a welcoming place, as a space that they can occupy and they can use to further their own vision for American society. So ultimately, that's that's what I try yeah. to trace historically and then talk about the meanings that Protestants have had for sports and how the organizations like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes were created and what changed over time and that yeah. sort of thing. That's that's a fascinating project. Um, you know, in our in our commentary today, I talked about, you know, really did a deep dive into sort of historical context. And we talked about Puritans and sports it's fascinating to hear you talk about worried, worrying about the Sabbath and all of the kind of sinful things that could happen with sports. And, you know, I ended the commentary, as, as you just heard, I ended my commentary today by saying the past is a foreign country. But now after listening to you describe this, there's certainly some continuity there, too, about Protestants and the concerns for sports. Many of these same concerns 17th and 18th century New Englanders had uh, about sports as well. Yeah, that's right. It's the the Sabbath issue has has declined so far that it's just often not thought of as a serious issue anymore for for people to contemplate. Yeah. But for Protestants into the 1960s, this is a serious issue that keeps them from from embracing big time sports. And, and that's one reason that I use the phrase big time sports yeah. in my dissertation and, and in my my book project. It's because by the 1920s, almost everyone has said, okay, sports are fine if they're done properly. So respectable sports that kids can play, right. organized sports, that's good. But the question is, what about big money sports? What yeah, if we have commercialization? Yeah. What if it's it's actually something that we prioritize over church? Right. That's something that Protestants, they don't, they don't come to terms with that for, for quite a ways after the 1920s. It's really interesting. I mean, this isn't big time sports, but my daughter is a NCAA Division three athlete. She plays for Calvin College um, volleyball. Go Knights, ranked number one in the nation as we're talking right now in volleyball. I thought I'd throw that in. But um, Calvin has made and other Christian colleges will not play on Sundays. Now, this is usually not a problem because they're scheduling their own games. But when it comes to the NCAA tournament, volleyball plays on weekends. So you play like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And the NCAA has actually allowed Christian colleges, they'll give them a Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, weekend. And then here at Messiah College, it's been interesting because we have a very high-powered soccer team. And we have a really nice soccer stadium, which often hosts NCAA 
regional finals. And it's only been, I think, Drew, the last few couple of years that they have actually allowed games to be played on Sundays. So I'm not quite sure what the situation is there with the NCAA, but it's interesting that these are still issues that are being discussed and debated. Absolutely. Let's jump into the news, Paul. And again, you know, this will be coming out. We're in the middle of September here. It's a Friday afternoon, five, what about five o'clock. We're up against the weekend here. But right now in the news, September of 2018, we're dealing with a lot of things. But we're one of the things with sports that we're dealing with is this whole Colin Kaepernick protest, taking NFL players, taking a knee while the national anthem is playing as a protest against sort of systemic racism um, and individual acts of racism within American culture. You recently published a piece at Religion and Politics, which is one of my favorite kind of online sites for engaging in this intersection of faith and and the political life. It was called Football in the Political Act of Prayer. And in this widely read piece, you argue that prayers at sporting events have always been politicized. Now, again, this is kind of a long question here, but obviously Colin Kaepernick did not take a knee to pray, but you also have someone like Tim Tebow, right, who's not in the NFL anymore, who also used to take a knee, right, after he scored and, and you know, he would pray. Both Kaepernick and Tebow are people of faith. So what does their taking a knee, maybe you could take each one separately here, um, connect what they do when they take knees to this kind of whole sportianity thesis that you have, and maybe some of the things, maybe historicize this a little bit in the way that you did in your piece in religion and politics. Sure. That's a lot to swallow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I like thinking and, and writing about this. Yeah. So I, we'll start with, with Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Kaepernick is, you mentioned that he is not, he's not kneeling in prayer. Right. Uh, he has not claimed to be kneeling in prayer, but his decision to shift his protest from one in which he was sitting out the national anthem to one in which he was kneeling, it was, it was, it was driven by a desire to find a gesture that, that evoked a sense of respect that, that showed that he wasn't trying to disrespect the flag. And so the, the posture of kneeling and its connection with prayer was important. But, but even then, beyond Kaepernick himself, many of his allies who have kneeled with him, like Eric Reed, his former San Francisco mm-hmm. 49ers teammate, they have kneeled and they have actually um, directly stated that their Christian faith is informing their decision to yeah, kneel. Yeah. They've stated some, some have stated that they were praying while they were kneeling. So, so even if Kaepernick himself has never directly linked faith, his, his faith to his, his kneeling, many of his allies have, and the posture itself, um, you know, evokes those, those religious uh, images and connotations. And so, so when, when Kaepernick does it, immediately there's a sense that this is, this is a political act. And in political, for those who, who might oppose it, they, they think of politics as a thing I don't want to see. It sort of has a negative connotation with, with uh, the way that Kaepernick um, engages in this. And, and, you know, especially for conservatives, many of who are white Americans, um, uh, when they see what Kaepernick's doing, they don't think of the religious aspect at all. They, they instead see it as for them an intrusion on what they thought was supposed to be this yeah. this space this cultural space where they didn't have to be confronted with difficult questions where they could simply enjoy a game 
and sort of unthinkingly continue about their day. And so I think what, what, what Kaepernick's kneeling and what his, his allies do with when they pray and they kneel, what they're doing is sort of a, a form of prophetic faith and bringing yeah. that into football, a, a faith that challenges some of the structures and systems uh, that we have in the United States, a faith that, and this, these, are, these are all done by black men, um, there have been some white athletes who have supported the kneeling players, but none of them have actually kneeled themselves. So these are black men who are bringing in sort of an element of, of prophetic faith to say, we believe that there are some serious issues with the structures in the United States with racism and police brutality. And as Christians, for many of them, not necessarily Kaepernick, as Christians, we think we have a moral obligation to take a knee, bring attention to this problem, and bring justice to it. Yeah, so... so- Kaepernick, we've talked about this sort of off the off the podcast, Paul. I mean, Kaepernick does have this kind of um, evangelical background. He's spoken at mega churches. You know, when you look at his tattoos, they look like something an evangelical would wear would would put on, uh, or would get. What do you do with the tattoo? You you get it inscribed. You just get them. You get them. Okay, <laughs> thanks, Drew. You've told me that Kaepernick has ne- whatever his faith is, or wherever he's at right now in his kind of faith journey, he's never connected his faith right with this kneeling. That's right. From what I've seen, I have seen there are some um, some authors that there's so many think pieces about Kaepernick that have been written. Yeah, and some have you know said, oh look, Kaepernick, he's an evangelical too. So why why don't evangelicals approve of what he's doing? And I, you know, I've, I've looked into this. There's another uh, reporter who I really admire, Jack Jenkins, who has written about this. Both of us didn't find any mention yeah. of Kaepernick connecting to his faith. So I do want to be careful not yeah. to claim yeah. his actions as, as here's an act of Christian faith. But you're absolutely right. Kaepernick came out of this world of sportianity. He was involved right. in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes as a college athlete. When he played in the Super Bowl for the 49ers, he was, you had all these sportianity publications praising him and talking about yeah, his faith. Yeah, and, and so they sort of turned on him now that he's, he's bringing another issue to light. And, and who were the guy, Reed, and who was the other guy you mentioned who, who were the, the Christians who were praying? Oh, Eric Reed, and then some, some teammates on, or some members of the Cleveland Browns during the preseason okay. last year did as well. So... I mean, I don't even know if this merits a question, right? More of just an observation. So you have white evangelicals who love it when Tim Tebow takes a knee and prays. You know, wow, what a testimony, they would say. You know, what a man of God. These people are praying and showing that they love God and are communicating with God in public, in the stadium, right, on this huge platform. But yet when Reed and these members of the Cleveland Browns take a knee and pray to God, which in and of itself is should be a thing that Christians love to, you know, because they're praying about in this prophetic way. They're being rejected. So in other words, you have civil religion, the worship of, well, the quote unquote, worship of the flag, worship of civic rituals, trumping young black men who are actually praying to the Christian God that should take precedence over uh, the the reverence due to the flag. Do I have that right? <laughs> is this right, Paul? I, I think, mean, I'm, yeah. I'm getting fired up here. Right. Is this? Yeah. Well, you've written about this is this yeah. is your white Christian nationalism at work yeah. here, right? Yeah. This is um, many Christians who are fans of of the NFL, white Christians, and 
And when they see what these players are doing, they think of them as the other. They don't think of them as fellow brothers in Christ. Um, they think of them as, you know, someone who's trying to undermine these values that I hold dear. Um, now, I do want to, one thing that's interesting, and to add a little nuance, the world of sportianity is mostly a white evangelical world. Yeah. And yet, there are very few, if any, that I have seen of, of these prominent Christian athletes who are white uh, who speak out against Kaepernick and Eric Reed and the black athletes. And in yeah, fact, okay. I found that at least among the leaders of groups like Athletes in Action and so on, there is there is a reluctance to condemn what Colin Kaepernick is doing. And I, and I think here we talk about uh, hi- historical developments. Yeah. Because so many black athletes are involved in big-time sports now, because the NFL is 80% African-American and the NBA uh, is mostly African-American. In in, in these sports, for Christian sports organizations to exist, they have to include black athletes. They they cannot exist um, in the way they'd like to unless they welcome them. And and because so many black athletes have a seat at the table of these, these sports organizations, it's, I think that, that those relationships that have been built have allowed a white Christian athlete who might be uncomfortable with Colin Kaepernick kneeling to at least be willing to yeah. understand his perspective in a way that he doesn't condemn them like a, a fan, a white Christian fan who only knows his white Christian friends and only sees that perspective. He, he is not able to at least get to a place of understanding that, that many white evangelical athletes yeah. uh, who have black Christian friends on their teams, they've been able to maybe not support it fully, but they're at least not willing to oppose it. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think if you look at the issues surrounding the Philadelphia Eagles' most recent Super Bowl win, you know, they they earned a reputation as being a, a very evangelical team, right? There are all these these uh, reports of the baptisms taking place in the yeah. in the practice facilities. Yeah, in the practice facilities and things like that. But when Trump started to really attack the Eagles and the issues surrounding the the visitation to the White House, the white evangelical quarterbacks weren't taking the side of I mean, they were taking the side of their teammates, and they were taking the side of, of... Well, it's it's again, this gets to the whole point of your work, right, Paul? I mean, you know, looking at sports as a venue where some kind of legitimate kind of mutual understanding between the races can happen to an extent that it doesn't happen in the larger society where you have whites segregated in suburbs and African-Americans in the city. You know, it's, it, it makes a kind of even a moral argument, right? Sociologists would have a field day with this. Maybe they've already written about this, right? That the engagement with the other, so to speak, creates a much more pluralistic, a much more um, accepting, a much more kind of flourishing, if you will, society. And I think that speaks to the point you just made, right? It's it's in these worlds, these these athletic worlds, where you're forced to come to grips with people who are different, where it seems to be successful. I think I think there's truth to that. And I think at an individual level, at the level of the athletes, we see that. But I also know that historically sports have often been used to present an image that covers up the reality that doesn't yeah. exist in the sports world. Yeah. So so it is true that in sports, we see the benefits of exactly what you're talking about, this bringing together of people and building relationships. But more often than not, instead of seeing that translate on the ground, 
we see, say, white Christian communities who might point to the fact that, hey, my my favorite athlete is black. Yeah. Instead of doing the hard work of, yeah. say, yeah. repenting of of sins of racism yeah. or or figuring out how can we engage in this problem constructively. Um, even the U.S. government, there's a history in the 1950s of the U.S. government in an era where segregation exists in the United States. They're sending out uh, black athletes around the world to say, look at us, we're inclusive. Um, we yeah, are, we yeah. support people of all races. And yet back home, the reality is much different. So sports absolutely can do what you're saying, but it can also cover up and, and sort of make people think that, that the difficulties aren't there that actually do exist. Okay, so we're getting towards towards the end of our time, but you, you've complicated some things here. You, you've given us a lot of great nuance. We historians love nuance. But let's come away with something a little bit more actionable. So, you know, for football fans, Sunday's coming up. Going to tune in, watch the NFL. You know, NBA season is about to start. Give us some tips for thinking about these games in a way that takes us beyond simply watching the athletic prowess on display or cheering for our favorite team. So, you know, how can we be more discerning and thoughtful observers of sports? Great question. I I like to talk about how other people have answered that question. As a historian, I always like to, you know, I, I'm much more comfortable saying, here's how other people have done it in the <laughs> past. Uh, but, you know, I have thought about this, too, uh, and I think the first thing you could maybe do is try to think of the athletes and coaches as human beings. This can be done by by reading about them, getting, you know, figuring out their stories a bit and and seeing them not as physical specimens who are there to entertain you, but as real people um, whose whose lives are complicated and complex. And, and I think doing that hopefully maybe can can help us to not commodify athletes. Uh, I think that can be important. Um, another thing would just, and this can be difficult, it's easier for me to do this because as a historian, I, I have the, the time to do it. I get to do this for my, as part of my job, but to th- take seriously, to not be afraid to shy away from confronting the ethical problems of sports. So, you know, this might mean when, when, when it comes to watching the NFL, you don't just bury your head in the sand when a new report about CTE comes out. It means you might need to question um, what it, what would it take for me to to not watch a sport? Um, at least be aware of of the ethical issues that are going on around these things. It doesn't mean you know it doesn't mean you have to constantly and always be thinking about that. And there is a joy in just watching sports that that we shouldn't lose. Uh, I, I certainly think, but at the same time, there we need to think about sports beyond just the pleasure it might bring us when we're watching the game. If we do think of the athletes as human beings, then then maybe we we can reflect on and at least dwell a little bit on the ethical dimensions of of the action that we're partaking in by watching. Our guest today has been Paul Putz, a historian here at Messiah College and an expert on sports and Christianity and the history of both of those things, at the intersection of both of those things. Paul, if we want to learn more about your work, I know you do a lot of online writing and you're very engaged uh, in these questions. How do we learn more about you? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at P, that's the letter P underscore Emery. Uh, website is sportianity.com. You could email me too. That's in my Twitter bio. So look me up, look me up there as well. Thanks, Paul. This has been a uh 
one of our better conversations. We've had a lot of fun with this, I think. A lot of back and forth, a lot of interesting stuff. We're all passionate about sports, so you know we we it provides a wonderful venue for sort of some great discussion. It's pre- and pretty good for our first guest who didn't really have a choice, right? <laughs> when we came in here, asked him to be on. I remember you shut the door behind you in his office and said, "Well, what's the line? An again? offer you can't refuse. I, I, I have make a- you an offer you can't refuse, Paul. Right. It's true, and I appreciate that you forced me into this. So if yeah. you need to force me into it again, I'm <laughs> yeah. happy to do it." Well, you're now famous, so uh, <laughs> That's we, were, right. we were joking that, that Paul, uh, he, he went from the rookie league up to single A by coming on this podcast, or single A to double A. We're double A, a, right? we're double a. Double, I give you this, double A for sure, and I don't know podcast. if I was rookie league. It's sort of like getting drafted and called right <laughs> up to right. double A. That's right. Thanks again, Paul. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thanks, Drew. Well, I have to say, that's a pretty good hire you got here at Messiah. He is not only a great teacher and a great uh, scholar, but I I really think he's at the cutting edge of a field that I think is really going to blossom in the next next decade or so. Uh, And he's really doing some interesting, interesting work on the field of uh, sports and history. And, you know, I so appreciate the way he thinks about sports in conversation with larger questions of race, of religion, you know, even of class and so forth. So it's really an interesting project that he has. And I think he's going to be a voice for this intersection of faith and history for uh, some time to come. You know, I, I mean, I was really fascinated in that conversation. I, as I've shared on, on the podcast a lot and even mentioned during the interview, you know, I don't, I don't come from an evangelical background, but I am now, I would say, evangelical adjacent, both by being a, a graduate of, of Messiah College and as, as someone who, who married into a, an evangelical family. Um, and, and this summer, I, it was really fascinating listening to him talk, because this summer I went to Camp of the Woods, which is this famous, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, this famous Christian summer camp. And uh, one of their most prominent backers and, and uh, board members is Norm Sanju, who is the founder of the Dallas Mavericks. Mm. And so there on campus, at, at the camp, they have the 1986 All-Star Game Floor the gym. They wow. they took the floor from the 1986 NBA All Star Game, which was held in Dallas, and put it and installed it there. and And they do a lot of those sorts of yeah. camps. While I was there, they had a, a former Mets pitcher yeah. doing a, a a baseball clinic. But it's you know it's really interesting because the the bigger thing is not learning baseball, but helping kids learn. Yeah, about, I mean, you see this all over. I mean, my big evangelical church has kind of a sports ministry. It's called Upward, mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. They, they bring kids in and they teach them. They play basketball games and they have like a devotional at halftime. Right. I mean, Paul would be able to talk more about this. It's, it's really a, a culture. I remember in the 1980s, the, the Philadelphia 76ers, uh, that's when they had Moses Malone and Julius Irving and Bobby Jones. Um, their general manager was Pat Williams who were all kind of in that sportianity culture in Philadelphia. You know, they would go to churches and Christian colleges and speak and sort of testify to their faith. So, yeah, of course, you have Tim Tebow, and this this culture has been around all the time. Um, my college roommate actually works for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, so we get we we give him a little money, and we get his uh, the sharing the victory. I think it's still called that. It may have changed its title, which is the monthly magazine for Fellowship mm-hmm. of Christian Athletes, and it's so biography based, right? It's it's 
Christian athletes at the college and the pro level sort of giving their testimonies and so forth. This is a world that's been largely underexplored, not only in the contemporary world, but historically. So I think Paul is going to really help us to understand some things, you know, whether you're into Christianity uh, and sports or not, you know, we all watch sports and we all sort of wonder what's going on when we see that circle of people in the middle of the field, football players praying, or when we hear this or that athlete sort of saying, I want to thank the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost, they are reflecting this larger culture. So I think this is, again, a wonderful project. You know, one of the other things that I find really interesting and the stuff that Paul Putz's work might contribute to is, you know, you go into these like sports museums and sports hall of fames and stuff, and there's very, very little discussion about religion. If Paul is right, Religion has played such a powerful role in sports at all levels. I'm wondering, you know, there's such a connection now between religion and the public history world and the museum world. That could be an avenue for many of these museums, not only to be more uh, reflective and accurate on on history, but also to attract more people uh, to these museums. I'm wondering if that's also something that our, our sponsor, the Lyndhurst Group, might be interested in helping museums and other public sites think about. Yeah, I mean, I think as Paul demonstrated in our our conversation, it's a complicated history. Putting together museums that accurately describe complicated history, that's a real challenge. And and I know that's the kind of work that Bob Beatty and the Lyndhurst Group is to help history organizations not just become better custodians of their resources, but be better at serving the communities that they're trying to reach. Yeah, if you have a museum or a historical society that deals with sports, I mean, I was just driving down the road the other day in Dillsburg. I had no, locally, I have no idea there's like a, a race car museum mm-hmm. on Route 15 here, right? Um, I don't know what the connection would be to religion, but if you have a museum or historical site that covers sports, uh, you know, religion may be a great way of connecting to some of the faith-based institutions in your community. And someone like Bob Beatty at the Lynnhurst Group can certainly help you to think about how to do that and to leverage the resources of your exhibits and your collections to bring more people into your spaces. Well, Drew, I think that's about a wrap here for episode number 40. I hope you enjoyed it. Certainly, we had a great time in our conversation today with Paul Putz. It's always fun to have him in studio. It is. It is. It creates a very, very different dynamic. So um, if you enjoy the podcast, please, Drew mentioned this earlier, please support us. Share on Facebook, social media, Twitter. And in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsors, Jennings College Consulting, Discovering the Right College Fit for Your Future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Paul Putz. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.